Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to continue today by first of all completing our saga of the first temple. And this means the temple in whatever form it existed and evolved up until the time of its destruction by the Babylonians. And then afterwards we're going to begin a, uh, this long and profound eighth chapter of 1 Kings that revolves around the initial dedication of Solomon's temple so that services of worship to Jehovah could begin within it. Now, we're, we're taking the time at this point to follow and sum up the history of the first temple because it plays such an important role in defining the context for the history of Israel. And the history of Israel over the next several hundred years had everything to do with the character and the actions of a long series of Israelite kings, both good and wicked ones. And they ruled over a very fractured promised land. And the nature of their leadership was always visibly manifested in their attitude towards the temple and the priesthood in Jerusalem. Now, recall from our previous lesson that within a few years after King Shlomo's death, Israel fell into civil war. It divided back into its more historically traditional northern and southern coalitions of tribes. And therefore, what was for 80 years a single united kingdom of God with one king over all the tribes, all the tribal territories, was now two separate kingdoms, each with its own monarch. So, as we discuss the two kingdoms of Israel, or as the Bible often calls them, the two houses of Israel, first understand that these two kingdoms came into being very quickly after Solomon's death. And second, that the name for the southern kingdom was Judah, and the name for the northern kingdom was Israel. But within 30 to 50 years after the two kingdoms were established, the northern kingdom's name was no longer Israel, but Ephraim. Or Ephraim Israel, for the sake of clarity. And this was because Ephraim was the dominant tribe of the ten that occupied that portion of the Promised Land. Now last week, we followed primarily the progression of kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. Because Jerusalem, and therefore the temple, was in their jurisdiction. And we really didn't address the kings of the northern kingdom except for, for minor mention of them in explaining that they generally shunned the Jerusalem temple and instead, instead they established two worship centers for themselves. One way up north and uh, called Dan and then another in the southern territorial edge at uh, Bethel which is right there. In fact, they also 
continued in a steady dissolution of their relationship with Yehovah by instituting calf worship, intermixing Baal worship with Yehovah worship, and setting up alternative and an alternative and a biblically unauthorized priesthood. Now, Rehoboam was the first king of Judah and Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, immediately following the civil war after Solomon's death, about 925 B.C. And our temple journey from our last lesson took us up to the time of Ahaz, king of Judah, who began his rule about 740 B.C. So we've already covered almost two centuries in time since the original building of Solomon's temple. Now, Ahaz ruled for 16 or 17 years, and he was one of the worst, most evil kings Judah had ever known. His desecration of the temple was without conscience, probably unrivaled to that point. Rather than review what he did, it can probably be best summed up with just a few verses taken from the books of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Just listen to this. This is from 2 Kings 16 verses 17 and 18. King Ahaz removed the panels of the trolleys and he took the basins off them. He took the sea off the bronze oxen supporting it and he set it on the stone pavement. And because of the king of Asher, Assyria, he removed from the house of Adonai the colonnade used on Shabbat that had been built for it and the king's entranceway outside of it. And also in 2 Chronicles, we're told this about Ahaz and his effect upon Israel. 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 28, verses 20-25. to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Asher, attacked and besieged Ahaz instead of strengthening him, even though Ahaz had stripped the house of Adonai and the palaces of the king and the princes and had given all the plunder to the king of Asher. It didn't help him at all. During his time of distress, the same king Ahaz added to his treachery against Adonai by sacrificing to the gods of Damasek, that's Damascus, who had attacked him, reasoning their gods, uh, the gods of the kings of Aram helped them, so I'll sacrifice to them, maybe they'll help me. But they became the ruin of him and of all Israel. Ahaz collected the equipment from the house of God. He broke to pieces the equipment from the house of God. He sealed the doors of the house of Adonai. Then he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah he made high places for offering to other gods, thus provoking Adonai, the god of his ancestors. Now, I, I ask you to take what has happened here to heart. Notice how the entire kingdom of Judah suffered because of one unusually bad leader who on the one hand insisted, insisted he was a true worshiper of Jehovah. He saw no inconsistencies with breaking down the God-ordained institutions established by Jehovah and instead instituting what he saw as a modern and enlightened way 
to practice the religion of his forefathers. And he did this because he was certain that he and presumably the citizens of Judah would benefit by being tolerant and inclusive and adapt to the new geopolitical realities of his times and of the region. It made political and economic sense to him to take this path. But in a relatively short time, it proved ruinous for the nation and for the people of Judah. And in an act, a final act of rebellious defiance towards the Lord, Ahaz closed the doors to the temple, stopped its vital services. But his son, Hezekiah, followed him. And he set about to make, make the temple operational again. Now, Hezekiah began his rule over Judah about 725 B.C. and around the same time that the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, was in the process of being conquered by Assyria. Now, let me be clear on this because the historical context is critical to our understanding Holy Scripture and understanding that there's much prophecy that has yet to play out. Part of the reason that Hezekiah's father Ahaz was so accommodating to the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser was because the Assyrian Empire was enormous and growing. It was virtually unstoppable. And it had already put the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, under siege. Ahaz, king of Judah, saw what was happening all around him. And he figured it was better to switch than fight. So he tried to fashion a vassal relationship with Assyria that allowed him to remain in power and Judah to remain a Hebrew nation. It is usually said in historical textbooks that the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel was conquered in 722 B.C. That's about the third year of Hezekiah's reign. But in reality, that's merely when the final stronghold of the northern kingdom, which was Shomron, Samaria, which was the capital city, when it fell to Tiglath-Pileser's armies. The northern kingdom had been under assault by the Assyrians for at least a decade before that had happened. And tribal region by tribal region, the ten Israelite tribes that populated the northern kingdom were deported to faraway lands scattered all over the vast Assyrian empire. This is where the legend of the ten lost tribes of Israel was born. And the only real inaccuracy of that so-called legend is when we add the word lost to the title. These people were never lost to themselves, except spiritually speaking. Their exile was the result of their own desire to give up their Hebrew heritage and their Hebrew God and instead adopt the ways and the gods of their Gentile neighbors. These ten tribes in exile knew exactly who they were. And many of them have doggedly maintained their tribal identities right up until today. 
Sadly, the vast bulk of those tribes, however, lost their identities, and they merely melded their genes with the Gentile world. Therefore, understand that this was the difficult situation that Ahaz operated under, and now so did his son and the new king of Israel, Hezekiah. They were basically trying to survive as a tribe and as a nation of Israelites and hoping to remain in the land. And they did so by submitting to Tiglath, Pileser, king of Assyria. And this sub submission involved accepting great societal change and even further intentional intermixing of worship with the Assyrian gods. Now we're going to see the same process happen right today in modern times in Europe as the leaders of nation after nation over there move to distance themselves from what little remains of their Christian heritage. And this is in order to appease the violent onslaught of the Muslim religion as what is to them just a pragmatic political accommodation in order for their nations to survive and for the leaders to remain in power. And naturally, it involves tremendous social and, and financial upheaval. A watering down or, or abandonment of traditional morals and ways of life. And an all-encompassing religious and cultural tolerance that is advertised as a modern intellectual enlightenment. And this new enlightenment that forms the rationale for the enormous changes that are underway. That's really nothing more than just raising the white flag of surrender. But despite what American leadership might say publicly, the United States is on the same path. We're just a few years behind Europe. And the recognition of this danger by U.S. citizenry is why such movements as the Tea Party spontaneously sprang to life. It's why there's this growing uprising of evangelical Christians from years of passivity and silence, as well as a swelling chasm between Christian denominations who on the one side want to embrace this new enlightenment and religious tolerance. But on the other side, they want to stick close to the biblical ways of old. And I tell you all of this as both a context for Ahaz's and Hezekiah's reigns and as a warning. The outcome was not what those ancient Jewish leaders hoped all of their compromising would bring. And it will not be what modern political, church, and synagogue leaders hope for either. It will be the destruction of Judeo-Christian ethic and principle that has been the firm foundation of the Western world for well over a millennia, even though our modern leaders now even deny that. Further, with the help of an expanding crowd of heretical Christian leaders, 
this new era of enlightenment and tolerance is going to deceive countless numbers of worshippers of Messiah Yeshua and the God of Israel. And it's going to deceive them into adopting ways that are abominable from the Lord's perspective and it is going to lead inevitably to ruin and a severe response from the Lord. Look, history cyclical. And as Solomon so wisely noted, there's nothing new under the sun. We've witnessed this all before. And these ancient biblical records weren't left for us to merely intellectually know what Israel did and the, and the terrible result, but also to show us what happens when we do the same as is happening currently. And what can be the only possible outcome? Hezekiah's first act as the new king of Judah was to reopen the temple doors. <coughs> the temple was so badly damaged under the previous administration that structural repairs had to be made before any kind of cosmetic restoration could be undertaken. Simply clearing the interior of the Hekal the temple of trash and debris took a large team of priests a full week. Then they set about trying to recover as many of the precious looted vessels and ritual implements as possible. That Some of them had to be remade, others repurchased. And after the refurbishment was largely completed, Hezekiah ordered a rededication ceremony. And the vital, then these vital temple functions restarted. And the first celebration after the de rededication was Pesach, Passover. Hezekiah also ordered that the many Bamot, the, the high places that had been constructed all over Jerusalem, and then later Judah, that they all be destroyed. He even ventured into the northern kingdom's territory. And he tore down some of their altars. But Hezekiah will be equally remembered for enlarging the Temple Mount until it formed the shape of a square of about 800 feet on a side. More buildings were added to the Temple Complex. A water tunnel was dug through sheer rock to the pool of Siloam under the city of David to help protect Jerusalem's water supply. And in fact, you can walk through that water tunnel today. However, in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, the latest in the line of the kings of Assyria, Sennacherib, came down to Judah, attacked, and he gained control over a large number of cities. This, of course, was meant as a message to Hezekiah, and it served its purpose. Hezekiah paid a large bribe to Sennacherib in order for Hezekiah to remain king and Judah to remain intact as a Hebrew nation. 2 Kings 18.16 speaks of that time. It says it was at that time that Hezekiah, Hezekiah, stripped the gold from the doors of the sanctuary of Adonai, from the doorposts which Hiskiah, king of Judah himself, had overlaid, and he gave it to the king of Asher. 
What we see thus far then in the temple saga is this cycle of the temple being looted and then restored, damaged and then refurbished, but also of it being heavily remodeled and added on to. In fact, many experts believe that during the first temple period of about four centuries that the holy complex had undergone so many changes and repairs due to looting and earthquakes and attacks from foreign enemies and simply normal repairs caused by time and weathering that the temple that the Babylonians eventually destroyed was unrecognizable from the one that Shlomo had built. Some claim that is what accounts for the differences that we see in the description of the temple um, in 1 Kings 6-7 through versus Second uh, Chronicles 3-4. through That is, these are descriptions taken from two different eras. Now as Hezekiah grew older, his son Manasseh ruled alongside of him. It's very similar to how this went with David and, David and Solomon for, for a time. However, upon his father's death in 686 BC, Manasseh excuse me, set about to backslide and reverse all the reforms that his father had accomplished. He went so far as to build altars to the stars, the sun, and the moon in the temple. And he even set up an Asherah there. Okay. The priests, no doubt fearing that Manasseh would ultimately desecrate the Holy of Holies, well, they removed the Ark of the Covenant from under the wings of that, those giant cherubim and they hid it for many years. After being hauled off to Assyria for a time for not being loyal enough to his foreign masters, Manasseh returned and removed at least some of the pagan altars he had ordered built. And at the same time, he repaired or rebuilt the great altar of burnt offering, meaning that even it had been defaced and ruined during his reign. Manasseh's son Ammon followed him and he was quickly murdered by his servants. Ammon's son Josiah was next and he began his reign at the tender age of eight and at the age of sixteen he actually began to diligently seek after the God of Israel. And within a few years, he began a series of reforms. And we read about that in Second Chronicles 34. It says here, Yoshiao, uh, Josiah, was eight years old when he began his reign. And he ruled for 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right from Adonai's perspective, living entirely in the manner of David, his ancestor, and turning away neither to the right nor to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, when he was still young, he began seeking after the God of David his father, and in the twelfth year he began cleansing Judah and Jerusalem from the high places, the sacred poles, the carved and cast metal images. In his presence they broke down the altars of the Baals. He chopped down the pillars for the sun worship uh, mounted above them. 
He smashed the sacred poles and the carved and the cast metal images, grinding them to dust, which he threw onto the graves of those who had been sacrificing to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, thus cleansing Judah and Jerusalem. He did likewise to the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Shimon, even as far as Naphtali and their surrounding ruins. He broke down the altars. He beat the sacred poles and carved images to powder, chopped down the pillars for sun worship all throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. It was during the renewal and restoration of the temple at Josiah's command that the current, the then current high priest Hilkiah made a startling discovery. In the midst of all that debris, he found the book of the law, which for that era was considered the book that we today call Deuteronomy. Now no doubt it was somewhere inside of the Holy of Holies. And that's why it was the high priest who discovered the scroll. Because only he could enter that chamber. And apparently even though the ark had been removed some years earlier to save it from being desecrated by evil king Manasseh, the Deuteronomy scroll had been left behind. Now recall that the book of the law was placed outside of the ark, not inside with the stone tablets from Mount Sinai, so it would not have gone with the ark into hiding. So now Josiah took his turn in history at rebuilding the temple, and once it was completed, he ordered that the ark be returned to its rightful place. And this is the point... This is the point at which the mystery of the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant actually begins. Because this is the last we'll hear of the Ark until the prophet Jeremiah's statement in Jeremiah 3 that indicates that the Ark is gone from the temple. Its whereabouts are unknown. And yet Jeremiah says that at some future time when all the nations of the world call Jerusalem the throne of Jehovah, then it shall be rediscovered. Think about what that means. Let me comment right here. I'm not going to get into the currently unsolvable debate over the modern day location of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, some claim the Vatican has it. Others that it's in Ethiopia. Still others say it's buried under the Temple Mount. Some insist that it was destroyed. I'll say this much. While I don't have a strong opinion on where it is, I do strongly believe it was not destroyed. And it exists just as it was originally made during the days of Moses. There is not a hint whatsoever in the Bible that it was destroyed. Nor is there any extra biblical documentation that claims its demise. And you know what? It's self-evident that if any writer of the Bible had sufficient evidence that the Ark of the Covenant no longer existed, they certainly would have spoken about it. I mean, I don't think, actually, we're far away from it resurfacing if the prophecy of Jeremiah 3 is being correctly interpreted.
Well, poor Josiah was killed in 609 AD as he naively tried to stand against Pharaoh Necho of Egypt who merely wanted to pass through Judah on his way further north to make war against Assyria. But because Josiah needlessly wounded Pharaoh's army, Necho retaliated by subjugating Judah and appointed a fellow named Jehoiakim as a vassal king over Judah. A few years later, King Nebuchadnezzar fought the Egyptian army and he defeated them. And then in 604 BC, he invaded Judah. And Jehoiakim quickly switched loyalties from Egypt to Babylon. So he was allowed to remain the king. However, he chafed at Babylonian rule and in a short-lived revolution, he was killed in 598 BC. Jehoiakim was replaced by Jehoiakim. But he only lasted for a few months when he, along with a large amount of temple treasure, treasure and thousands of his fellow Judahites, were hauled off to Babylon as prisoners. Zedekiah replaced Jehoiachin. He was the last king of Judah. He too chafed at their rule at the demands of these Babylonians. So Nebuchadnezzar's armies came down, completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Nothing was left of it. The temple would not be rebuilt from the ground up in any form until 536 BC and then would go through many more improvements, degradations, followed by expansions, more desecrations, more redesigns, until Herod built the most magnificent temple complex ever created on Mount Moriah. Now we're going to stop here in our temple saga because the final point I want to make is this. There are interminable arguments and debates about whether the temple destroyed by the Babylonians should even be considered as Solomon's temple due to everything that had happened to it. And if the terribly modest one built after the Babylonian captivity should be thought of as the second temple. And if it's thought of as the second temple, should Herod's temple be considered the third or should it be considered just an expansion of the second? And thus will the prophesied temple of the modern times be the fourth temple or will it be the third temple? The bottom line is nothing's that nice and neat in Bible history certainly not in Bible prophecy. If we're going to have an intellectually honest study of the Bible and then an equally intellectually honest discussion of its meaning and its application, then we have to realize we don't have all the answers supplied to us by God's Word about what happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future. We just don't have it all. But even more, we certainly can't reasonably expect to understand Bible history from only the New Testament. Nor can we reasonably expect 
a good understanding of what lay ahead prophetically from only the Old Testament. And some of these rigid interpretations that pass for truth today within Christianity are really little more than speculations that support personal agendas. And often, this is in order for denominations to have something to differentiate them from the other ones. Or for pastors and teachers to create followings and sometimes to generate lucrative book sales. (laughs) And what we also see is that Solomon's creative interpretation of what a proper temple to Yehovah ought to look like from the viewpoint of a Hebrew society in 960 BC is very different from that of the Israelites of 800 BC and then of 700 BC and then of 600 BC and then of the early 500 BCs. They all envisioned something a little different. Herod's temple built about 20 years before Yeshua's birth, envisioned it another way, as does Ezekiel's millennial temple, even though there are commonalities among them all. And the one that's soon going to displace that ungodly golden dome shrine of Islam on the Temple Mount is probably going to look different than all the rest of them as well. I think if any of us are fortunate enough to witness the next temple constructed on Mount Moriah, I think we ought to hold lightly onto our personal vision of what it's going to be. Because I doubt it's going to be anything like it. And remember, other than for the requirement of an inner an outermost chamber, the Holy of Holies and a holy place, not much else structurally really matters. It's mankind, Jews and Christians, who seem to have a lot of emotional investment in the idea of exactly how a temple of Jehovah ought to be constructed. Because as God told David 3,000 years ago, he's not impressed. He's not concerned with fancy buildings. Matter of fact, he's perfectly happy with a tent for his earthly dwelling place. As promised now, let's get started on 1 Kings chapter 8 and the dedication ceremony of Solomon's temple. Now this is a very long chapter. So I want to approach this by today, reading it from start to finish, and then we're going to spend just a few moments to give you some general information about it, and then next week we'll revisit it in sections, rereading short portions of it as we go. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 377. Then Shlomo assembled all the leaders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the chiefs of the paternal clans of the people of Israel, to King Shlomo in Jerusalem to bring the ark for the covenant of Adonai out of the city of David, also known as Zion. 
All the men of Israel assembled before King Shlomo at the festival in the month of Etanim, the seventh month. All the leaders of Israel came. The Kohanim took the ark and brought up the ark of Adonai, the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils that were in the tent. These are what the priests and the Levites brought up. King Shlomo and the whole community of Israel assembled in his presence, were with him in front of the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen in numbers beyond counting or recording. The priests brought the ark for the covenant of Adonai to its holy uh, to its place inside the sanctuary of the house to the especially holy place under the wings of the Karuvim, the cherubim. For the Karuvim spread out their wings over the place for the ark, covering the ark and its poles from above. The poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside and they're there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moshe put there at Horeb when Adonai made the covenant with the people of Israel at the time of their leaving the land of Egypt. When the Kohanim, the priests, came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Adonai so that because of the cloud, the priests couldn't stand up to perform their service because the glory of Adonai filled the house of Adonai. And Shlomo said, Adonai said he would live in thick darkness, but I have built you a magnificent house, a place where you can live forever. And then the king turned around and he blessed the whole community of Israel. The whole community of Israel stood as he said, Blessed be Adonai, the God of Israel, who spoke to my father David with his mouth and fulfilled his promise with his hand. And he said, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city from any of the tribes of Israel in which to build a house so that my name might be there, but I did choose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of Adonai, the God of Israel. But Adonai said to David my father, although it was in your heart to build a house for my name, and you did well that it was in your heart, nevertheless you will not build the house. Rather, you will father a son, and it will be he who will build the house for my name. Now Adonai has fulfilled the spoken word of his. For I have succeeded my father and sit on the throne of Israel as Adonai promised and I have built the house for the name of Adonai, the God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark containing the covenant of Adonai which he made with our ancestors when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then Shlomo stood before the altar of Adonai in the presence of the whole community of Israel. He spread out his hands towards heaven and he said, Adonai, God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven, above, on earth, below. You keep covenant with your servants and show them grace, provided they live in your presence with all of their heart. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. You spoke with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hands, so it is today. Now therefore, Adonai, God of Israel, Keep what you promised to your servant David, my father, when you said you will never lack a man in my presence to sit on the throne of Israel. If only your children are careful about what they do, so that they live in my presence just as you have lived in my presence. Now therefore, God of Israel, please let your word which you spoke to your servant David, my father, be confirmed. But can God actually live on earth? Why, heaven itself 
Even the heaven of heavens can't contain you. So how much less this house I have built. Even so, Adonai, my God, pay attention to your servant's prayer and plea. Listen to the cry and prayer that your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes will be open towards this house night and day, towards the place concerning which you said, My name will be there. To listen to the prayer your servant will pray towards this place. Yes, listen to the plea of your servant and also that of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Here in heaven where you live and when you hear, forgive. If a person sins against a fellow member of the community and he is made to swear under oath and he comes and swears before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemn the wicked, so that his way of life uh, devolves on his own head, and vindicate the one who is right, giving him what his righteousness deserves. When your people Israel sin against you, and in consequence are defeated by an enemy, then if they turn back to you, acknowledge your name, pray and make their plea to you in this house, here in heaven, Forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land you gave to their ancestors. When they sin against you, and in consequence the sky is shut so that there's no rain, then if they pray towards this place, acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you have brought them low here in heaven. Forgive the sin of your servants and of your people, Israel, since you keep teaching them the good way by which they should live. Send down rain on your land, which you have given your people as their inheritance. If there's famine in the land, or blight, windstorm, mildew, locusts, shearer worms, or if their enemy comes to the land and besieges them in any of their cities, no matter what kind of plague or sickness it is, then regardless of what prayer or plea anyone among all your people Israel makes, for each individual will know what is plaguing his own conscience. And the person spreads out his hands towards this house, here in heaven, where you live and forgive, act, since you know what is in each one's heart. Give each person what his conduct deserves, because you and only you know all human hearts, so that they will fear you throughout the time they live in the land you gave our ancestors. Also, the foreigner who doesn't belong to your people Israel, when he comes from a distant country because of your reputation. For they will hear of your great reputation, your mighty hand, and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, then hear in heaven where you live and act in accordance with everything about which the foreigner is calling to you. So that all the peoples of the earth will know your name and fear you as does your people Israel and so that they will know that this house which I have built bears your name. If your people go out to fight against their enemy, no matter by which way you send them, and they pray to Adonai towards the city you, cho- you chose, toward the house I built for your name, then in heaven, hear their prayer and plea. Uphold their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who doesn't sin, and you are angry with them, 
And you hand them over to the enemy so that they are carried off captive to the land of their enemy, whether far away or nearby. Then if they come back to their senses in the land where they've been carried away captive, they turn back and they make their plea to you in the land of those who carried them off captive, saying, We have sinned. We have acted wrongly. We behaved wickedly. If in the land of their enemies who carried them off captive they return to you with all their heart and being and they pray to you toward their own land which you gave to their ancestors, towards the city you chose and toward the house I have built for your name, then in heaven where you live, hear their prayer, their plea, uphold their cause, forgive your people who have sinned against you, forgive their transgressions, which they have committed against you, give them compassion in the sight of their captors so that they will show compassion towards them. For they are your people, your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the flames of the iron furnace. May your eyes be open to the plea of your servant, to the plea of your people Israel, so that you will hear them wherever they cry out to you. For you made a distinction between them and all the peoples of the earth by making them your inheritance. As you said through Moses your servant when you brought our ancestors out of Egypt, Adonai Elohim. And when Shlomo had finished praying all of this prayer and plea to Adonai, he got up from in front of the altar of Adonai where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out towards heaven. And he stood up and he raised his voice to bless the whole community of Israel. And he said, Blessed be Adonai who has given rest to his people Israel in accordance with everything he promised. Not one word has failed of his good promise which he made through Moses' servant. May Adonai our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us or abandon us. In this way he will incline our hearts towards him so that we will live according to his ways and observe his mitzvot, laws, rulings which he ordered our fathers to obey. May these words of mine, which I have used in my plea before Adonai, be present with, our, with Adonai our God day and night so that he will uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel day by day. Then all the peoples of the earth will know that Adonai is God. There is no other. So be wholehearted with Adonai our God, living by his laws, observing his commandments as you're doing today. Then the king, together with all Israel, offered sacrifices before Adonai. For the sacrifice of peace offerings which Shlomo offered to Adonai, he offered 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Thus the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of Adonai. And that same day, the king consecrated the center of the courtyard in front of the house of Adonai because he had to offer the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fat of the peace offerings there. For the bronze altar before Adonai was too small to receive the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fat of the peace offerings. So Shlomo celebrated the festival at that time. All Israel, a huge gathering, they had 
come all the way from the entrance to Hamath to the Wadi of Egypt celebrated with him before Adonai our God for seven days and then for seven more days 14 days in all on the eighth day he sent the people away they blessed the king and returned to their tents full of joy glad of heart for all the goodness Adonai had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people well that's quite a chapter this long chapter can really be viewed as being in three parts first the bringing of the ark, the remnants of the wilderness tabernacle and all the various ritual uh, vessels to the temple atop Mount Moriah. Second, we have Solomon's prayer of temple dedication. And third, the blessing of the congregation of Israel and the many sacrifices that then initiate the temple services. Now there's also a brief mention, very interesting, of another event. And that is the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. And that takes place in conjunction with the temple dedication ceremony. Now, we'll end here. The most interesting and controversial aspect of the opening couple of verses of this chapter is when did the temple dedication ceremony take place? See, we're told that it happened in the seventh month. But if we go back to 1 Kings chapter 6, we read this in verses 37 and 38. The foundation of the house of Adonai was laid in the fourth year in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year in the month of Bul, which is the eighth month, all parts of the house were completed exactly as designed as he was seven years in building it. So, the temple was finished in the eighth month, but the dedication is said to have been performed in the seventh month. First, let me mention that the seventh month is here called etanim in 1 Kings 8, and it's not a Hebrew word. Etanib Etanim is Phoenician. Right? And it means something like endure or strengthen. Why was a Phoenician word for the month used here? Probably because Hiram was a Phoenician king and his involvement in the building of the temple was crucial. So very likely, this was for the purpose of honoring the Phoenicians and their king for their generosity and participation in the temple construction. Etanim, the seventh month, is today called Tishri. Now, the problem of the timing. There is no other reasonable explanation than there was an 11-month delay from the official day of the completion of the temple on the eighth month of one year to the day of its dedication in the seventh month of the following year. Some scholars try to say that it actually didn't happen for several years until Solomon completed his own 
palace complex. And that's because we read about the building of Solomon's palace prior to reading about the temple dedication. That simply defies common sense. And as we've discussed, the Bible doesn't operate in strict chronological sequence anyway. Solomon would not rush to build a grand temple, outfit it entirely, and then let it sit there dormant and unused for 13 years. There is no evidence that Solomon saw any kind of temporal connection between the temple and his personal palace that would account for some kind of a 13-year wait. But, why would he wait even an 11-month period to dedicate the temple and start to use it? Actually, it's not very hard to understand if one knows the Torah. The seventh month is a very special holiday month in the Hebrew religious calendar because the three fall feasts occur then as ordained by Yehovah. The feast of Yom Teruah, which we today traditionally call Rosh Hashanah, that happens on the first day of that month. The feast of Yom Kippur, that happens on the tenth day of the month. And then finally, the feast of Sukkot begins on the 15th day of the month and it lasts for eight days. See, the key to understanding why this exact time was chosen to dedicate the temple is not contained in the festival that's the more obvious one, Sukkot. The key is an understanding Yom Kippur. The issue was that the Ark of the Covenant had to be placed into that newly built Holy of Holies for the temple to become functional. But only one person, the high priest, was authorized to enter that chamber and just as importantly, only on one specific day of the year could he go in. Yom Kippur. So the temple couldn't be dedicated, it couldn't be anointed, unless the ark was in the Holy of Holies. And that couldn't happen, according to Torah law, except on the tenth day of the seventh month of the year, Yom Kippur. Thus, the wait of 11 months from the date of the temple's completion to the date that it could be dedicated was so that the next Yom Kippur could arrive and the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies to place the Ark of the Covenant there. Okay, We'll continue with chapter 8 next week.